For those of you who are uh, visiting with us today, you are joining us this week near the end of a summer series looking at um, the various covenants between God and humanity in, in Scripture. And uh, we come to Exodus 24 as we consider the Mosaic Covenant. And we will read a few verses there. And then I think we'll just we'll stop our reading there. And then uh, a little bit later on, we'll turn to Galatians 3 uh, for the corresponding uh, scripture reading. Let's give careful attention now to God's word and indeed God's voice. Exodus 24, beginning in verse 1 through verse 8. Then he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood... And put it in basins, and half the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Thus far, the reading of of God's word. We're talking about the Mosaic Covenant today. It derives its name uh, not from a a type of picture or type of artwork, uh, but uh, from the man who mediated this covenant initially, Moses. It's the Mosaic Covenant because Moses stands central when we consider it. Uh, But it's better known and recognized by another name, and that is the Old Covenant. We live in the days of the New Covenant. New in comparison to what? In comparison to what we're talking about this morning, this Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. And it was very difficult to pick out a sermon text to use for our consideration today that encapsulates the Mosaic Covenant because in one sense the entire Old Testament does that. That's why it's called the Old Testament. Old Testament and Old Covenant are synonyms for one another. Apart from Genesis, which we could say serves as a sort of uh, um, preface to or preamble leading up to it, every book, every single book in your Old Testament is, is seen in the light of the Mosaic Covenant, of the Old Covenant. So if we base our estimation of this covenant on sheer word count alone, it is abundantly clear it is really, really important. And yet, according to one source, this is the most perplexing or the most misunderstood aspect of the Bible for many Christians. What does it mean? What do we make of this old covenant? What's it all about? 
Well, at the heart of the Old Covenant is a passage that we all know very well, and that's the Ten Commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments? They're God's laws for holy living, for upright living. They're laws. And yet we've been talking this summer about the covenant of grace. We're talking about God's plan and his purpose to save a people for himself, not according to their works, but by his grace alone. And so then we think, well, then what does law have to do with grace? Are these two not entirely antithetical? And so that means we have to address, even for just a moment this morning, uh, this matter first. That is that there are reasons why this covenant does not seem gracious. That's the first thing I just want to run through with you. There are good reasons why it doesn't seem, at least at first blush, that this covenant is gracious at all, that it belongs to the covenant of grace. I mean, the theme of the Mosaic covenant, we heard it twice in our passage, is this. All the words of the Lord, we will do. Doing is law. The law is about doing. Grace is about believing, about receiving. So it seems like there's a massive contradiction here. Note also something else very strange about how this covenant is ratified, which underscores this confusion about how the Mosaic covenant could be properly understood as a part of the covenant of grace. In the ratification ceremony that we read in Exodus 24... There's something that happens to confirm this covenant, to ratify it, to establish it, and that is that there's bloodshed. Now, we saw that before with the Abrahamic covenant. You remember that there's, in Genesis 15, what does God do? He has Abraham uh, cut these animal pieces, or uh, animals into pieces, and he separates the pieces, so there's this big pathway of blood. And we saw that God passed through that that death passage, that, that, that pathway of blood, as a way of signifying that he really meant what he was saying. I should become like these severed animals if I don't keep my end of this covenant. That's what he's saying there. But you remember, Abraham doesn't do that. Only God. Abraham's asleep, after all. This is a unilateral, a one-sided promise of God. It's all of grace. God's saying, I will keep the covenant. I will even bear the curse of you covenant breakers, the blood is on me, not on you. Life for you. And we know when it comes to Calvary, it was indeed death for God in the person of his son. We see grace there as the blood, as the blood is on God's side and no one else's. But what happens in Exodus 24? There's blood again. And who is it placed upon? Well, look with me at the text again in verse 4. Moses builds two things. He builds an altar, which represents God, and then he builds 12 pillars, which represent the 12 tribes. And then we're told that uh, there have been sacrifices made in verse 5, and then verse 6, he takes the blood of those sacrifices, he puts half in basins, and half he throws on the altar that represents God. God is, is part of this covenant. But then, what about the blood that was in those basins? Well, we read in verse 8, he took the blood and he threw it on the people. Something that didn't happen with Abraham now happens in the Mosaic Covenant. The people now go through this death passage as well. Now, likely, he's not sprinkling blood on the people literally, but probably on those 12 pillars that he erected to represent the tribes. But the point is, unlike what the gospel that God proclaimed to Abraham, which was unilateral, one-sided, it's all me, it's all me, now this is bilateral, it's two-sided, 
There's two parties now. God says, I'm going to do something, but you need to do it something as well. And so they all receive that threat of curse. And so the Mosaic Covenant, we see it's conditional. It's not, I will be a God to you for an everlasting generation, which we saw in Genesis 17 last week. No, rather, it's I'll be a God to you if. If. And essentially, the whole Old Testament records for us the tension that the nation feels, the pressure that they feel living under the burden of this obligation or this conditional arrangement. They're constantly being chastised for disobedience. They're they're constantly losing out on temporal blessings. They get the land for a moment, then they're kicked out to exile. One pastor writes that the nearly omnipresent refrain in Deuteronomy, which is all about the law, is that Israel must be careful to keep the law by doing them so that they can live long in the land. And this refrain, burdensome by its incessant repetition, underscores the conditionality of the covenant. And condition doesn't sound gracious. There are reasons why it it can be hard to say that the Mosaic covenant is part of the covenant of grace. Uh, A conditional bilateral covenant that ends up cursing the people and they lose the land because they don't obey, well, that is just, it just doesn't sound gracious, does it? Let's just be honest. It doesn't seem gracious. So the question is, does it actually belong to the covenant of grace? And the answer that I'm uh, asserting now is yes. And we'll take the remainder of our time this morning to unpack why that is. Uh, the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant with this nation, with all of its laws and its regulations... When we look into it, we do see that it is a means of God dispensing grace to his people for at least uh, three reasons. We're going to see, first off, that it's gracious because it instills within the people an aversion for self. Secondly, an admiration for Christ. And thirdly, an aspiration for holiness. And we'll unpack those now in our remaining time. But before we do so, let's read from Galatians 3. Turn with me to the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 26. And again, there will be um, aspects of what Paul has to say about the Mosaic Covenant. Again, we'll underscore this, just, not, just does not seem gracious. But then we'll, we'll unpack this to see how the law really is a means of God's grace when properly understood. When properly understood. Beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, that's the law of Moses, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, namely the Abrahamic covenant, so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has, had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That's the question we're asking. Is the Mosaic covenant contrary to the covenant of grace? Certainly not. By no means. For if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, but now that that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay, in what ways is the Mosaic Covenant actually gracious? We saw how it doesn't seem like it at first, but in what ways? Well, in first, uh, the first thing we want to see is that it instills an aversion to self. What do we mean by that? Well, the law deprived the people of the false notion that they could actually do something that would earn favor with God. God gives his law to empty people, to empty people of the faulty notion that there's something within themselves that they, can, that they can tap into that would bring a smile to God's face and earn them their salvation. And that's what Paul says in verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Well, it has to do with the unattainable demands of the law. And Paul highlights that by quoting from Deuteronomy right after that. He says, because it says, Curse is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In Deuteronomy, that comes at the conclusion of a chapter that's chock full of curse. The Israelites are about to enter the promised land, and and this is Moses' last chance to warn them of what they're getting into. They're God's people now, and they have covenanted to bow and to submit to him. But this isn't easy. Look at the totality uh, from this verse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. No one is exempt. Our law-keeping must be personal. You can't do it for me. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you, boys and girls. You need to live a perfect life before God. It must be personal. But then it must be perpetual, kept always. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law. The law demands from us personal and continual, perpetual obedience. And then it also demands perfect obedience we need to keep the law always and we need to keep all of it it says cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the in the book of the law not some of the things not even most of the things but all the things personal perpetual perfect obedience maybe you've had this experience before we had it um, somewhat recently and uh, some of the kids uh, were over the other day uh, playing out in the yard and so I'm telling their parents this after the fact. One of the fun things was riding around on a new four-wheeler that Jacob got, and Carrie Ann and I were assembling that a couple weeks ago. 
And when we all were complete with it, we you know, looked over, and there's this one screw left. There wasn't supposed to be one screw left, and we kind of go through the whole process again. No, I don't see where we missed this. It looks important. And so, you know, there's a reason I might not, might not drive that four-wheeler. Because when you have that one missing piece, uh, you don't necessarily have confidence that it's going to hold together. Nobody was harmed yesterday, so just know that it is still running. But have you ever had that? You're putting together a piece of furniture, perhaps, and then when you think you're all done, you're putting back parts of the car, and you look, and, now, what's that for? Well, apparently, you did not abide by all the things that were written in the book of the, well, instruction manual, Right? That's what it's like, though, that kind of unease, that sense of, of I don't have confidence that this thing is going to hold together. That's what it's like when you try to live your life according to your obedience to God's law. If you're missing one part, the whole thing falls apart. And so what the law does is it comes in to show us that we can't be confident in our own law-keeping. Breaking one precept brings all of the curses. So this is the unattainable demand of the law. It's personal, perpetual, perfect. Who could possibly render that kind of obedience? And the answer is no one. No one. When people like the Galatians were looking to the law and relying upon it for salvation, they had completely abused what the law was actually given to do. If you look again at verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law, that word rely is actually the verb for to be, to exist. Maybe we could translate it for everyone who exists for the law is under a curse or everybody who tries to find their life in their law keeping is under a curse. That's not why the law was given. The law was not given to save people. The law was given to show people that they needed to be saved. And deep down, Israel, they they knew this. They knew they couldn't bank on their law-keeping. Because you know what's interesting? When you read the history of the nation, anytime they get in deep trouble with God, when when it seems like he has turned his face away from them, when they're, they're facing near annihilation, the end is near because of their disobedience, do you know what they never do? They never appeal to the Mosaic Covenant as a means of securing God's favor. In other words, they never say, Lord, we know you're really upset with us, but you made a covenant with us at Sinai, and we said we would keep your law, and we've done done an okay job. They don't do that because they knew where that would lead if if they tried to appeal to the Mosaic Covenant. So you know what's interesting? Anytime they're in trouble, they appeal to the Abrahamic Covenant. They don't say, Lord, you made a covenant with us, and we had to keep our end, and we didn't. No, what they say is you made a promise even before Moses, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to be our God forever and ever. And even though we have failed to obey you the way you deserve, we're clinging to that promise. That's where they found their hope. They knew deep down the law wasn't going to save them. So we read in places like 2 Kings 13 that, quote, the king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and turned toward them. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob, and he would not destroy them, nor would he cast them from his presence. So the law was not given so that people would suddenly place their hope in themselves. 
Instead of God's gracious promise, it's the exact opposite. Paul clarifies that in verse 17. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make that promise void. Now, the promise of grace made before the covenant of the law is never abrogated, never canceled out. Rather, now the covenant, we see what God's saying here is the covenant with Moses, this covenant of law, is actually meant to be a sort of window through which you see the covenant of grace and the promise with Abraham. Because you've been given an opportunity, as it were, to try to do it for yourself, and now, rather than despair, look and see my plan all along, not to save you by works, but by my promise. And so the law was never given... Uh, as a means of giving the people a reason to hope in themselves, but only to get them to look away from themselves. And friends, you need to recognize the law is given for that same reason for you and me today. God gives us his law so that we would recognize we can't keep it. And anything that gets you looking away from yourself is grace. That is grace. Because the biggest thing that stands between you and eternity with God is you. The biggest thing that stands between me and, div- and, and blessed eternal fellowship with God is me. So anything that gets me looking outside of myself is grace. So the first thing, it instills this aversion to self. We recognize, no, it can't be us. Secondly, though, it's gracious in that it instills an admiration, or maybe we could even say an adoration For Christ specifically. Knowing that we cannot live the life God demands of us, we're desperate for somebody who can. You remember that dramatic scene in Revelation where where we're given this picture of the people in the heavenly places and, and they're despairing. Why? Because is there anybody worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord? Is there anybody worthy to open up the seal? And then in steps Christ. There is one who is worthy. The law with all of its demands, shows us the perfection of Christ, the one who kept every single one of those demands. Personally, perpetually, perfectly. The law, we could say it like this, the law for us is is sort of a portrait of Jesus. It's painting a picture of Jesus so that when you look to the law, you get to see your Savior before you actually get to see your Savior. The beatific vision face to face. We get to see him now, but when we look to the law, the law was given literally to lead us, as it were, by the hand, bring us to Jesus and saying, here, he's the one you need. Take him. You've looked away from yourself. That's great. But now look to him. Again, Galatians 3 is instructive. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came Uh, The word translated guardian, maybe your version has schoolmaster or tutor. Uh, It's not a helpful translation. What we're to think of here is something more of like an au pair uh, or a live-in nanny. Somebody that's brought in from the outside of the family with the specific task of of taking care of the children, tending to their needs night and day. You know, I, I don't think there's any in our congregation, but you know those families that have butlers that raise their children? In the movies, right? Just in the movies. That's the idea here, though. In the, in the Greek world, uh, this was a common practice. And the word that, that Paul uses here is pedagogus. We hear our English word pedagogy, which has something to do with teaching, instructing, which is why uh, some versions translate this schoolmaster. But, but what the pedagogue did, what the guardian did, was 
they were in charge of watching the child. In particular, their job was to bring them to and from school. That was one of their responsibilities, uh, getting them from place to place. And so the law is that guardian that brings us safely to Christ, to our real master, our real teacher. Why? Verse 24, in order that we would be justified by faith. You see how the law is subservient to, to grace. It is, it is serving the purposes of a grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, salvation. It leads us to the only one, the only one who has kept the law and has done so for us. And so, friends, when you know the law, you know what Jesus did. You know him. Uh, Galatians 4, you can look there. It's in verse uh, 4. It says that the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. That's the same thing Paul had said about us, that we were under the law. Before Christ came, we were held captive under the law. Verse 23, imprisoned. The law places us in prison, maximum security. And the penalty is death. We are vile offenders. We're on death row. We're under restrictions. We can't move. We can't get out. We're captive. And, and Christ came under that same condition, born under the law. Uh, he, he didn't have, he, he had the same restrictions as us, which is to say he didn't have the freedom to do whatever he wanted. No, he was obligated uh, to, to do what his father asked of him. He was committed to serving God the way that God wanted. But more than that, he, he came to experience the penalties of breaking the law. He, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, what? A curse for us. Being under the law puts us on death row. And yet for Christ to be under the law actually meant he was executed. He was executed. And because of that, Paul makes a profound statement that should just melt your heart in love for Jesus. In Romans 6, he says, Now... Sin will have no more dominion over you. For what? You are no longer under the law. You are under grace. Because Christ came under the law, came into the the same requirements and restrictions and penalties that, that God implemented in the Mosaic Covenant, because he met those for you and for me, we're no longer on death row. Do you see? That's what Paul's saying. You are free now. You're free. And doesn't that make you admire Jesus and adore him? Oh, when, when properly understood, we see the grace of the law because it instills in us that thing we need so badly, which is a love for our Savior, an admiration for our Savior. Well, there's a final thing we could say about the law, and that is it instills a, an aspiration for holiness. Maybe I could put it this way. What is your reaction to that good news? That good news that Christ was born under the law and lived under the law so that you now can live under grace. What's your reaction to that gospel good news? What's your response to hearing that Christ has broken the imprisoning power of the law? The Bible tells us what our reaction should be. So everybody pay attention. This is what you're meant to do. Here's how you're meant to respond to the gospel. And it almost sounds paradoxical, but here's... Here's what the Bible says. You're actually to look back to the law. Now that you've been redeemed from it and saved by it, 
or, or saved from its curse, now you are to look back to it. Because once the law has deprived us of ourselves, once it has instilled an admiration for the ministry of Jesus, we're prepared to look at it under a new light or in a new way and find that it actually tells us the way we're meant to live. It, it gives us an aspiration for holy living or, or the kind of life that God wants from us. The, the law of God shows us the beauty of God himself. It shows us what kind of lifestyle will reflect his glory and his resplendence. We love the law now because we love God, the God who saved us in Christ Jesus. Professor J. Nicholas Reed, he's from RTS, says this about the Ten Commandments. He says, because human love is reactive, the Bible calls humanity to respond to the loveliness of God. Since love of God and love of neighbor are the sum total of the moral law, it is fitting that the Ten Commandments begin by inducing Israel to react to God's love by stating what God has done for his people. We learn what God has done in the context of the Ten Commandments. What is it? What is it? He's brought us out of the house of slavery. Well, now in the gospel, we have so much more to respond to. It's not just that he brought us out of the house of slavery. It's he died to make that happen. We know that now. And now we're meant to respond, to react to that love he has for us by loving him. How do we show our love for him? We keep his word. We keep his law. So the gospel tells us what amazing things God has, has done for us. And our response immediately should be in love to say, now what can I do for him? And the answer is found in the law. We can live for God and be holy as he is holy. And, and here's what's so profound. And we're closing with this. Do you know what happens when you do that? Do you know what happens when you start to live the life that God wants you to live? You will be happy. You'll be happy. You'll be whole. You will be living your most authentic self. What do you think of that? What do you think the world would think of that? To, to this claim that God's law actually unlocks the secret of personal happiness and, and satisfaction and fulfillment. Sounds countercultural, doesn't it? But it's true. Pastor Tim Keller captures it like this. We see that the law of God is a gift of grace. How so? In that it's the foundation of human flourishing. It's not busy work assigned just to please the arbitrary whims of a capricious deity. No, the law of God simply shows us what human beings were built to do, to worship God, to love their neighbor as themselves, to tell the truth, to keep their word, to forgive everything, to act with justice. And when we move against these laws, we move against our own nature and our own happiness. Disobedience to God sets up strains in the fabric of reality that can only lead to breakdown. That's what Keller's saying. When you move against this law, you will not be happy. The world doesn't want to hear that. And perhaps you today don't want to hear that. You have your life figured out. You know what will make you happy. And you also know, perhaps if, if you come to church often or you grow up in a Christian home, you know what the church would say to the things that you think would make you happy. You know what your parents would say to the things that you think would make you happy. Maybe you think, well, they just don't get it. I, I really have it figured out. No, you don't. God gives us, by grace, the means for us truly to be happy. And it's to live a life that 
reflects his character, to reflect his beauty. And so what does the law have to do with grace? Well, we've seen a few things, haven't we? The law of God gets me outside of myself. It gets me around that greatest barrier between me and heaven, my own sin. It shows me I, I, I can't do it. And the law is gracious in that it points me to the one who can. It leads me to Jesus, the curse bearer, the covenant keeper. But then the law teaches me how to live a life of holiness that brings a smile to God's face. And you know what else? When you keep it, it will bring a smile to your face too. The world is desperate for happiness. The world is searching for fulfillment, for satisfaction. People spend all their money, all their life looking for it, and guess what? They never find it. Maybe the car just wasn't new enough. Or maybe it wasn't this spouse, but it will be the next one that I find. Maybe it's my particular gender expression. need to change that. Maybe it's a better job, more freedom, maybe more activism or social change. People, they search and search and search, and they never find. And I hope today that is not you. Quit your searching. The key to your happiness, friends, it's right here. The key to your fulfillment in life, your wholeness, it's right here. God has told you exactly what you need to be fully satisfied so that you don't need to go looking for it. And you know what? That sounds a lot like grace to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the whole of Scripture. And we recognize how within it we find, we find law, we find commands, we find instruction. Oh. We also, though, find gospel, declaration, promises. We need to understand how to, to, to interpret these both and to hold these both in, in balance. Your law, your, your, your commands are not given so that we would try to, to win our salvation by our righteousness, for we have none apart from Jesus. But rather, Lord, as we come to know your word, your law better, would we... See it as a gracious means of getting us outside of ourselves, of drawing us closer to Christ, the perfect fulfillment of the law. And then, inspired by the gospel, which tells us he fulfilled all righteousness for our sakes, would we return to that law? Now, with with new spectacles on, as it were, seeing it as a means uh, of glorifying you and even bringing gladness to our own hearts. We ask that you would be so merciful Uh, to cause us to do this, that you would give us what we need to read your word and divide it rightly so that we would be people more and more conformed to the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.